Welcome to the Mark series, part 42. We're digging into a passage um, that shouldn't be controversial, but it is because people are weird like that. <laughs> so uh, I'm Pastor Mike, and this is the Monday live stream, which we use to get into the Gospel of Mark. Right now, we're verse by verse teaching through the whole Gospel of Mark. Generally speaking, my plan is on Mondays, I'm always going to be doing like a, a teaching, a lesson, a you know, I'm not taking live chat questions. I'm doing a Q&A thing on Fridays, but this is going to be like verse by verse for the most part, verse by verse studies. And here we are in Mark chapter 11, dealing with the, the fig tree where Jesus curses the fig tree and then he kicks people out of the temple. And he does some very strong things here. Like what he does here is very aggressive and we should give him credit for the very aggressive nature of what he's doing here. And people have complaints. People have complaints about it. One of the complaints uh, that I want to address as fairly as possible is the complaint about the fig tree itself. And there are some who think, you know, the fig tree didn't deserve that. Why did Jesus do this to this poor fig tree? And I'm, I'm going to try and address that if that's your concern. I, I think you're like really not even thinking. Like, not that you're not thinking clearly. You're actually not, you're not thinking about this issue. If the fig tree is like the utmost of your concern, this poor fig tree. But I want to address it and help you understand why I'm saying that. And I want to hopefully help you with that. Also, another concern is that Jesus, some think, is being emotional or irrational. So it's a, not a concern about the tree or it's a concern about Jesus, right? He curses a tree and then he goes in the temple and he's, he, he flips out. He flips out. And um, something he's being irrational. And they point to the fact that the fig tree, it's he's looking for figs. He curses the tree and it's not even the season for figs. Mark says it right there. So like, what was he thinking? And I think here we're just misunderstanding what Jesus is doing. And we have perhaps false expectations of Jesus. And they we need to see Jesus flipping the tables. We need to see Jesus kicking people out of the temple and using force to do it. Because we need to remember that Jesus, meek and mild, is also the judge of all the, the world. And we will all, the living and the dead will stand before him in judgment one day. And this is a good reminder of his authority and his power and his proper place to deal with us all. So yes, he's, Jesus deals very aggressively here and it's a good reminder of who he is. And I think also on the theological side of things, as we study the gospel of Mark, this is probably one of the best examples of a Markin sandwich. The, now the Markin sandwich, the, the term, you, you should know this term if you want to understand the gospel of Mark. I've talked about it a lot, but I'll just do a quick reminder. It's when Mark in his story, he creates a, a literary sandwich. He, he has the beginning of a story. He tells a part of a story and then he interrupts that story to tell a different story and then he finishes the original story and that creates a sandwich so you have like the bread pieces which are the original story and then the story in the middle which is like the meat that's the the mark sandwich now the reason why he does this over and over again and and commentators and scholars and skeptics christians alike will recognize mark does this this is like a normal thing in the gospel of mark and the reason he does this, now I'm not pretending, I'm not going to suggest he's like, he's uh, fabricating what happened in Jesus's life, but he could have left these things out. He, he could have told the story without the fig tree at all. He didn't have to include it. He includes it because it's commentary on the temple or the temple is commentary on the fig tree. And that that's the key. The Mark sandwich is a way of giving us commentary without commenting. It just makes context like point very heavily towards an interpretation of a passage. And that's what we're going to look at is these two stories and how they tell us what we should think, how the fig tree and the temple clearing, they're really about the same thing. All right, now we're going to read it. Start by just reading through it. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 21. I hope you have your Bibles out, but you know what? If you don't, there you go. It's on screen for you. This is in the NASB. That's what I'm using in the Mark series for consistency. 
And we're going to read verse 12 through 21. And just note, he didn't, Mark didn't have to include the passage about the fig tree. It's a short little book covering years of Jesus's ministry. He chooses everything very carefully. Why is he including it? Well, look at the passage, notice the sandwich, the fig sandwich, so to speak, and, um, and see if you can pick up on some of the theology that, that we're getting here in the gospel of Mark. So here we are in verse 12. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, that's Jesus and the disciples, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. That's the first part of the sandwich. Now he interrupts it with a whole different story. Then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling and in the, in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And notice the seats. That's something people don't often comment on. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, it is not, it is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. And he quotes two different Old Testament passages there that are very significant. We'll get there. The chief priest and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, but they were afraid of him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. So this here is the closing of the sandwich, right? Back to the fig tree. Being reminded, Peter said, uh, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Then Jesus has a teaching on faith and prayer. I'm going to get to that next week. This week we're going to focus on the temple and the fig tree itself. Um, so here's here's the short version. I'm going to give you right at the beginning here, right? If you just want the, the summary, well, here it is. This is it. The fig tree is Jerusalem and in particular, the temple. The fig tree represents the temple, just like the temple represents all of Israel. And the fig tree is bearing no fruit when Jesus comes to look for the fruit, just as Jesus in the parallel, he's the Messiah coming to the temple. Remember, that's a theme in Mark and he's finally arrived from the Mark chapter one. It was, it was, it was foreshadowed quoting Malachi that, that the Lord's going to come to his temple. And then Jesus comes to the temple and he doesn't see fruit. He doesn't see people waiting for him, waiting on the Messiah, loving God, serving God. He doesn't see the temple using, making uh, fulfilling his purpose to be a house of prayer for all nations. Instead, he sees merchandising, he sees materialism, he sees abuse and he sees corruption. And so he, he cleanses the temple, right? He sees no fruit. And then he, he makes these statements that will we'll come to these quotes in the Old Testament where he's like the den of robbers and all that. And these strongly imply that he's saying the temple's going to be destroyed just like the fig tree was cursed. So the temple will be destroyed just like the fig tree was cursed. That's the main point here. Judgment's proclaimed against it. So this is, that's the summary. That's that's why the fig tree's there. That That's the whole meaning of the passage. You could you could go by. That's, I hope you had a good time. I hope this is a good Bible study. You got the point. Um, but of course there is so much more and there's so many things to cover here. Uh, lots of neat, fun and challenging things because there is application into our lives that is pretty, um, pretty strong when we look at this stuff and we realize that Jesus's attitude towards the temple is also his attitude towards our hearts. So here we go. Mark 11 verse 12 on the next day. 
First by verse, here it is. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Now, one of the challenges, the the, the things that comes up in discussions of this passage is, is sometimes the deity of Jesus Christ. And some will say, um, is this saying Jesus didn't know whether there were figs or not? So there was something Jesus didn't know, but God is omniscient and therefore Jesus isn't God. And I think that uh, I just want to respond to this by saying, if that's you, like if you're in the audience, you're listening and you're thinking, yeah, that's a good objection to the Trinity. This, the good news here is this. You really don't know what the doctrine of the Trinity is. Like, I'm, now this is not meant to be, I'm not trying to criticize you. Uh, it's, it's meant to say, hey, here's the good news. We've always thought that there were things Jesus didn't know. We've always thought this. This is, this is not new. This is not even a challenge to the deity of Christ because there is in his human nature the ability to not know things, whereas in his divine nature, he has omniscience. And what's the interplay? Well, sometimes in the scripture, we see him knowing things that humans can't know. He knows what's in the heart of man. He, um, he knows that, like, say, Nathaniel sitting under a tree when he can't see him physically. He just knows it, right? So he, he, has, he has supernatural knowledge, but there's other times where he seems to not know things. In fact, he even says he doesn't know the day or the hour. So th- this is this has been been always a part of the understanding of the deity of Christ. And so we, we would say in his human nature, he lacks the knowledge. Uh, one way to put this is, and the way I think I would put it, is to say he he limits his, his conscious access, his conscious access to his omniscience. And on a human level, we might feel this way when we when we say, I know this, but I can't remember it right now. So like we kind of know it and don't know it at the same time. Um, anyway, I, I hope that that helps. I think that there's a, there is an assistance there, uh, but this has never been a challenge for the deity of Christ. Now, it's actually possible that Jesus did know the fig tree wasn't going to have any figs. He probably knew it was not in season, and um, but he was hungry. And so he decides, I'll use this moment as an illustration um, for me coming to the temple and finding them not bearing fruit. So then there's um, a, a second issue here, not the, not the deity of Christ issue, but... This is a, an unfruitful interpretation. Some pastors or, or teachers feel uncomfortable with Jesus um, approaching the tree when, it, when he shouldn't have expected to find any fruit on it. And I, I don't think that's a problem at all, but, but here's how they'll put it. They'll say, well, yes, Mark says it wasn't the season for figs, but it was the season for these little figs. And you can eat the little green figs. They're not ripe. They're bitter, but you can still eat them. They can sustain you. And that's true. That figs can have in that time, Passover time, this is this is like April, they can have, fig trees can have little green, normally you don't eat these kind of figs, and Jesus is upset because it doesn't even have those. My problem with this is that this literally contradicts what Mark is, is getting at. If Mark was aware that there were little green figs, he thought they weren't important, and that's why he writes, right, it was not the season for figs in verse 13. So it's not the season for figs. So then the question we have is, why is this in there? Why is Mark saying he went to the tree to look for figs, but it's not the season for figs? Like, why is this in there? I think the point is for us to realize, this is like a hint in the passage, that this isn't about the fig tree and it's not about the figs. This, the tree is an illustration. The tree is a living parable, right? Just like when Jesus walked on the water, it was teaching them a lesson about his identity. When Jesus curses the fig tree, it's teaching them a lesson about Jerusalem and the temple and the people of Israel who are rejecting their Messiah. And that's what's happening in this part of the Gospel of Mark.
He reveals who, his identity, and the next thing, they reject him. And so this is, this is the reason why it's there. This is to shock us. There was, it was not the season for figs. So we go, this is a teachable moment. This isn't, this isn't like Jesus doesn't understand when figs are supposed to be in season. They lived very close to the land. They knew when things were supposed to be in season, partially because they did not have grocery stores, right? You're, you're not, you're not going, you could buy figs all year round right now, right? But that's because of grocery stores. We have, we have global farming, we have greenhouses, we have all those kinds of things, but no, they didn't have any of that. They knew when, when figs were in season. Um, yes, this is a teachable moment. So what's the lesson? What's the teachable moment? I'm going to give you four elements that Jesus is, is giving us in this teachable moment as he, as he acts. Now he does this all the time, right? When he, when he breaks the bread and he gives it to the people, he, he, he multiplies the bread. That's an illustration of how he's, he's like the new Moses, the better Moses. He does it then for the Gentiles too, to show he's, he's reaching out the second time he does it. He's reaching out the gospels for the Gentiles, the Jew first and also the Gentile. He does, he lives out the reality of his mission all the time. So this is just another one of those moments. All right, number one, number one lesson we learn from this cursing of the fig tree. Jesus, first we see he's hungry and he wants the fruit of the fig tree. He's hungry for it. This is this represents God being hungry for Israel to bear fruit. He wants to see righteousness and he wants to see readiness. He wants to see them being righteous, living godly, and he wants them ready for his coming, ready for the coming of Messiah. This was the, the Old Testament was to prepare the way, yet those who were the carriers of the Old Testament, the, the Jews, they... Uh, as far as the leadership goes, many, I mean, the whole church was early Jews, or the early church was all Jews. So it's not like all Jews rejected Jesus, but the leadership who were supposed to be the, the stewards of God's word, they rejected the Messiah. And so he's hungry for the fruit. And then two, he comes and examines the tree. He comes and approaches the tree. So Jesus is now coming to Jerusalem, coming to the temple, and he's examining Israel, especially the temple in particular. Last week, the triumphal entry, people don't realize it didn't end in Jerusalem. It ends in the temple. Jesus enters into the temple. He looks around and then he examines it and then he goes away. When he comes back, he's flipping tables and he's kicking people out. So this is, this is him approaching the fig tree. Number three, he finds no fruit on the tree. He finds no fruit on the tree. Now there's an Old Testament theme and I want to actually go to a Old Testament scripture here, Isaiah 5, that talks about God being in search of fruit uh, from Israel. So he finds no fruit. Um, in this passage, it's, it's somewhat parallel, similar story. He finds bad fruit. He finds inedible fruit uh, to the same effect. So Isaiah 5.1, let me sing now for my well-beloved, that would be singing about God, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard and his vineyard is Israel. So the vineyard, so Israel's seen like something that's supposed to bear fruit to God. And then it goes on and tells kind of a parable. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. That would be Jerusalem. He, uh, dug it, he dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. There's stones all over Israel. So he, he clears it out. He does all the work. The farmer does all this hard labor. And he built a tower in the middle of it. And that may well represent the temple itself. And also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it only produced worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why? When I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. So God inspects for the fruit. He prepares them for the fruit. They don't produce it. And then now what will he do in Isaiah? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge 
so it will, its wall will be destroyed and it will be consumed i will break down its wall and it will become trampled uh it will become trampled ground i will lay it waste it will not be pruned or hoed but briars and thorns will come i will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it so it's going to suffer the vineyards going down the vineyards going down and jerusalem's going down now that ends up happening um you know after the time of isaiah that is exactly what happens and the ultimate judgment on israel of 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 them having rebelled against God. It's not just them being carried away out of the land. That's a huge part of it. But the ultimate pinnacle of showing God's judgment against Israel for their rebellion against God and for them not following his word is the destruction of the temple. And that is what Jesus is talking about here when he finds no fruit and he curses the tree. That's the fourth element. He curses the tree and it withers. And this fits the whole context of the gospel of Mark. How do I know the trees about, about the temple in particular? It's because... Um, the, the, the Mark and sandwich that's here where it's, it's shown that it's about the temple because of the way that he puts the temple story in the middle of the fig tree event. Then we also have in chapter 12, the parable of the tenants, where it talks about the destruction of those people, where Jesus is talking about judging and punishing those who reject the son who comes in the name of the father. And then they're going to be, their doom and destruction is on its way. Then in Mark 13, to make it even more clear, Jesus directly and very clearly prophesies of the destruction of the temple itself. And so this is, this is very much about this. This is Jesus shows up and the Jewish people do not receive him as they should. And so judgment is coming their way. So it's not about being mean to a tree. All that to say, <laughs> this is not about Jesus being mean to a tree. It's not about Jesus losing his cool. It's not about him being irrational. This is a very thoughtful, careful, lived out illustration of the judgment that comes upon Israel for rejecting the Messiah. And ultimately, ultimately applies to anyone who rejects the Messiah, who rejects Jesus Christ as he prepares them with the gospel, with the preaching, with the work of the Holy Spirit, and then they turn from it, that there's just nothing else left. <clears throat> so the trees and illustration. Now those there are some who would be bothered by this, and I want to maybe try to put a branch of help out for you. Um, you might be bothered because you just the idea that he killed a tree, like he killed a tree, and we, sometimes we we don't maybe realize that we're personifying plants, right? We do this, or with animals too. Animals are beautiful and great. I love animals. I love my pets very deeply, actually. But I don't think that they're humans, right? Like I just realized there's a difference. Like we're in the image of God. We're different kinds of beings of a higher value than animals. And animals are a, of a higher value than plants. And I just recognize the difference. And let me give you an, an illustration. Um, if you have a tree in your front yard and you don't like it, you cut it down and you and you don't like weep and you don't have like a, a burial for it. Like it's not, it's not that big of a deal, right? It's different if it's a one of a kind tree. It's the last of its species or something, or if it's a whole forest, like let's just burn a whole forest down. Like we would all see moral problems with doing those things. At least I would. But we use trees for paper, for building chairs, for teaching, for teaching truths, right? Books are printed on trees that we chopped down because we thought it was worth it. So if you disagree, just write out the reason why you disagree and then write it on a paper and mail it to me in the mail. And then ask yourself why you thought your message was so important that you could put it on a piece of paper that would require you to kill a tree to do it. I mean, just, I am not kidding. On the internet, I have seen people really, really like personify the fig tree as a way of complaining about Jesus. And I just think there's a deeper issue between them and God that's actually going on there. 
Also, the fig tree in the Old Testament is important. So the fig tree has symbolism that goes back to before the time of Christ. And one example of this is Jeremiah 8.13. Jeremiah 8.13. And of course, um, Mark is steeped in Old Testament. So we should view the gospel of Mark through the lens of the Old Testament. We should always be seeing, you know, we, we really should see the Old Testament, Old Testament as the foundation for the new, and it should give us guides in interpreting. Um, Jeremiah eight thirteen. I will surely snatch them away, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine and no figs on the fig tree and the leaf will wither and what I've given them will pass away. This is actually about a prophecy about the ultimate destruction of Jerusalem and the temple itself. And so it's described as no figs on the fig tree and the leaf withering. And this terminology is right there in Mark. There's, there were no figs and then the leaf withered. And so this is... Um, the withering of the fig tree in Jeremiah is representative of judgment on Judah, which is ultimately the destruction of the temple, the pinnacle of that judgment. So there's another connection in the Old Testament. So not only is it clear in Mark and it's there in the Old Testament, it's also just consistent. The use of pictures of like things like destroying a fig tree or, or, or multiplying bread, the use of pictures, how Jesus does this actually a lot, is consistent with the way Old Testament prophets behaved. They would use symbols all the time, like the fig tree, for instance. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah actually t takes a piece of pottery under the instruction of God and he breaks and smashes the pottery as an illustration of the breaking of, of Israel, of Jerusalem. And we also see how he like wears a yoke. Like think of a yoke you put on, a, on an animal and he wears the yoke and he wears it around town while preaching. Why is he doing this? Because they're going to be under the yoke of their enemies, the yoke of their enemies, the bondage, bondage to their enemies. Um, Elisha, you know, takes arrows and has a king smash the arrows as an illustration of victory over their enemies. So th this is like a normal thing for the prophets to do. I think it communicates to us humans in a, in a very neat way when God uses these kinds of, you know, 3D illustrations. So the overall context is that Jerusalem here, and don't miss this, there's another point, different, not repeating myself here, there's a different point I think we should, we should catch. Jerusalem's judging Jesus. Right? They're going to they're gonna end up rejecting him. They're going to end up saying crucify him. The leaders in particular are the ones pushing for that. But Jesus is judging Jerusalem. And he finds them fruitless. And he proclaims judgment against them. And this is the world we live in today. The gospel goes out and people think they're judging the gospel. Judging Christianity. Judging the truth of it. And the truth is that they're being judged by it. And their response to the gospel becomes the way that they are judged. The way that they judge Jesus is the way they'll be judged by Jesus. Acceptance or rejecting. Yielding or rebelling. And I think that this is so applicable to the gospel today. This, this, what happened in the first century, deep in this, in this Jewish context, in this temple context, it applies perfectly into the lives of people today when they hear the gospel of Christ and they go, hmm, yeah, I don't think I'm going to, and they don't realize that this judgment is going to be reflected right back on them. Now, let's talk about the temple cleansing. Um, I want to try and clear up some misunderstandings of the temple cleansing. And I also want to help us apply it. Uh, the application is actually, I think, the most important part of this, of this passage and of this study today is the application. And I think you may find it challenging, and I hope you do, actually. All right, so here we are in verse 15 of Mark 11. And let's read a little bit of this, and then we'll break it down. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And, and note the things Jesus does. He drives out 
people, buyers and sellers in the temple, and he overturns the tables of the money changers, and, and this is the part that gets me actually, the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Okay, so here's some elements. Um, let's let's first ask this question. What is like the nature? Like how how violent was Jesus in this passage? Like what is the, the nature of his behavior in this passage? And I don't want to water it down, but I also don't want to turn it into like, um, like it's meant to be some clickbait kind of, inflammatory representation of Jesus either. So let's just look at it and try to try to understand it rightly. This is what our Lord did and, and I want to I want to look at it straight. So one thing he did was he drove people out of the temple. And note that he drove out buyers and sellers. This this requires some measure of force. It's it's not like Jesus is just like placid, you know, like he is in a lot of the medieval, you know, um, paintings of him. He's just always very like there's paintings of Jesus on the cross. Right? On the cross and he's just like, I have no emotions whatsoever. I just feel generally pleased. Like, and, and it's like, that is, he's like a crown of thorns and he's just like slightly smiling, you know? And I'm like, okay, this is, we, we need to not do this. There was one Jesus movie in the past that they were so wanting to have Jesus as happy and smiling in like all the scenes that even when he's like yelling at the Pharisees, you hypocrites, he's like smiling and laughing while he says it. And you're like, yeah, I don't think he smiled and laughed like, all the time. I don't think that, that was I don't think that was probably what was going on. He he kicks people out of the temple. He drives them out, not just their merchandise, the people. And he does it to buyers and sellers, not just the buyers. We often think the, the or not just the sellers. We often think the buyers are like the victims, but he kicks them out too. So this is a little different than maybe what we are sometimes thinking when we're studying this passage. The next thing he does is he overturns the money changers' tables. And I should have grabbed a screenshot of it, but there is actually a of a, a um a painting that I found uh, as I was looking for, you know, for the thumbnail image, I wanted to have a, a good thumbnail image for this video. And I was looking for Jesus overturning the money changers tables. And I saw one where it's a high action photo. The table's like halfway up. He's in the middle of flipping it over. Money's going flying. And the people are like in action mode. They're like responding like, whoa, you know, in the, in the, uh, in the painting or in the picture. But when you look at Jesus, he is just like stoic. He's just totally totally placid right he's just he's lifting the table the table's halfway being thrown over money's going flying but he's just totally chill very calm like could you imagine he walks up to the money changers tables and he's just like i'm just gonna go ahead and lift this over can you guys please exit i would appreciate that thank you you know (laughs) yeah um he's causing havoc he's causing a chaos in a sense and and rightly so now, the, the last thing he does that I think maybe is the strongest is he overturns the seats, the seats of people who were buying and selling in the temple. Now, um, the question is, did he like overturn them with them in the seat, which would imply actual physical violence towards another person? Although it's, I mean, it's not like the worst thing in the world. Someone knocks you out of your seat. Like, you know, I know in America will sue you for that, but that's because um, people want money, not because it's actually that bad. <laughs> um, so... But I don't think he actually did that. I, I think that Mark would have written, he pushed people out of their seats, right? But he, he, he focuses on the chairs. So he overturns the tables and he overturns the seats. So the implication is that he, he forcefully, he's like, get up and get out of here. And he's got a group of people following him. And the force of that strong arm 
feel causes them to get out his own declaration of authority, uh, maybe some measure of respect they have for Jesus still at this point. Anyway, they get up and they move and then he knocks their tables over. He knocks their chairs over because he's saying, you're done. You're not coming back. This is this is it. So, yeah, it's forceful. He's a force to be reckoned with, but it's the seat and the tables that are emphasized, not the people. Um, and he somehow stops people from even carrying merchandise in the temple. Now, the temple was, this was not inside the physical temple building. That's what we think when we say in the temple. But the temple had a relatively small building compared to the temple courts that were much larger. So you had the building and then you had like the, where, where the, just the men could go and then the court of the women where the, where the Jewish women could go. Then you had the court of the Gentiles, which was like a couple of football fields. This is pretty big. And in this area... Gentiles, Jews, men, women, everybody can go into this area. So it was the one place where all nations could be. And that's where all the merchandising was happening. And Jesus is kicking it out. His goal here isn't to hurt people. His goal is to get this business out of the temple. So that's the nature. Yeah, um, violent, maybe maybe not the right word. Forceful, yes. Aggressive, yes. Disruptive, yes. Um, all those things. Now, how should I view it? You know, I, I, I know, and for instance, John talks about an, uh, what I think is an earlier temple cleansing. Um, some people think there was just one, and John just relocated it, um, and that it was appropriate for him to relocate it, not that he did so deceptively. He's just moving, uh, telling the things out of, out of order for the sake of com uh, theological commentary on them. But, uh, but John does mention a whip. John does mention a whip that Jesus had. That was probably used on the animals and probably not on the people. So he made the scourge of courts. He's probably using the animals. The animals don't know him. They don't respond to him. They're, he's not the owner of these sheep, so to speak. But the whip will get them to respond. You know, So he, he waves and swings it over the air. Um, he doesn't even have to hit an animal with it. He just has to make noise with it. And they'll, they'll go running. So that may have just been that. So how should I view Jesus doing these things? Um, I think I should view it as him being the Lord of all the earth and being the king of the temple the, the king of David, the, the son of David, you know, the king of Jerusalem. Like he, he is the Lord of creation and he is especially the king of the Jewish people. It's entirely in his right to do this. He's not going to somebody else's house. He's coming to his own house and he's cleaning house. He is Lord. He has the right to do this. And we do have an increasing, it, it's definitely in the secular world. There is this idea that who's got, you know, we used to say, who are you to judge me? You're not God. Now it seems like we're shifting to where we say, who is God to judge me? And that does seem to be where the shift is, is, is heading in, in amongst the secularization of our, uh, of our communities and culture. And I think that this is, this is a, a huge error, rationally, to think that there are some who think, let's suppose God really exists and that I've really sinned against him. Well, who is he to judge me? This is... This is a revelation that somebody is in spiritual darkness and they can't even think clearly about their sin. It's like saying, who's a cop to arrest me? Who's a judge to convict me? Who's a jury to sentence me or something? You know, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that's, that's exactly who he is. Jesus is in his right. He's Lord. It is God's temple. This is God's son. And he has come to his house. It'd be like you, you're the oldest sibling in a house and you come home, your parents are gone. You're the oldest sibling. You're kind of the one who is in charge when they when they leave. And you come and you find your younger sibling is throwing a party and people are drinking and smoking and doing stuff in your home. And you get in there and you you say, get out. And you kick them all out. And then they turn to you and they go, who are you to kick me? You know, I mean, it's your house. This is your domain. And this is Jesus's domain. He has a right to do this, which is tough applying it to me. 
Um, so let's talk about how do I apply it? How is Jesus doing this? How does that apply to my life? Um, does it apply, for instance, to me being rude in comment sections and then saying, well, Jesus overturned the money changers tables? Um, not exactly. So let's talk about it. First off, it does mean Jesus wasn't always nice. I love this fact about Jesus, right? He wasn't always nice. And sometimes people try to take the teeth out of Christianity by insisting that Christians always be sweet. Well, we're not. <laughs> and and as much as I want to have a, a sweetness to me, that sweetness is about my devotion to Christ above all and not just about trying to make myself look appealing to people, which honestly, in the long run, it'll backfire. People... A lot of people, anyways, can tell when someone's trying to present their understanding of the gospel and their, their following of Jesus as just like, it, it almost feels like they're salesmen instead of they're showcasing the truth of Christianity. And they just want to appeal, 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 make it look as sweet and nice and happy and friendly as possible. Yet within Christianity, there is a call to repent. There is a threat of judgment. And these things are real. And these things are good because those things are true. When I'm, when I'm warning people, if you do this, you'll suffer. That's a good thing if it's actually true, and, and it is. So Jesus is not always nice. He has no fear of conflict, and our fear should never be of conflict. Christians have to try to rid ourselves of the fear of conflict, but it's important that we keep the fear of getting in the flesh. I want to be afraid that I'm getting in the flesh, that I'm compromising, that I'm over overreacting in anger, and that I'm sinning while trying to do something godly. So I think, though, that it might be an actual mark of genuine, godly spirituality. When you, as a Christian, you can confront people, even in hard and difficult and uh, conflicting moments, you can confront people and you can do it without sinning. That is a great mark of spirituality. Because so often what triggers us to actually say, that's it, I'm going to say something, is we've also said, and I'm not going to worry about being in the spirit anymore. And Jesus here is perfect. He's absolutely perfect. He's, he's a model of confrontation, aggressive confrontation while walking in the spirit. And we can follow that. He was not always nice. Uh, number two, second point, a uh, second way it's a model for us. It's not a cloak for us to compromise. Um, I think that sometimes we we just, we, I've seen it before, where, where someone throws up a meme of Jesus clearing the temple and they use it as an excuse for, as you read the comments, you're like, yeah, that was just, you were just being ungodly and rude. Like, you're, you're not, you're not being Jesus here. Okay. <laughs> so it's not an excuse to say, well, there's that one time Jesus was aggressive. This will, this will excuse whenever I want to be aggressive. Uh, you need to be more worried about being in the spirit versus the flesh. That's how you discern what's the right and wrong of it. And then number three, it is a reminder to react to compromise very, very strongly. So it should inspire us to actually go and overturn some tables sometimes, but we need to be careful. Here's how we limit it. Just like the temple is Jesus's proper area of authority, I think you have to limit your overturning tables and your kicking people out to your proper area of authority. Let me give you some examples. If you are in church and you're a pastor, an elder, a leader in that church, and you see bad, significant compromise going on, it is your job to speak up and to actually take action. That is the appropriate time. Now, if you're not a leader in that church, you may have a lesser responsibility for how you react. You may be responsible for leaving. You might be responsible for, for you know, going through the proper channels as much as possible. Um, or if it's just grievous, like the gospel itself is being um, compromised utterly, then, then I think you have a responsibility to stand up you know, and, and, and say it in the most tactful but impactful way you can. 
so yeah, like if you're a if you're a church elder and you're going to a church where they do an offering five times and they pass the money around, the money plate around five times and the pastor is telling everybody, really trust the Lord, give twice as much as you did last time it went around, then it's time to overturn some tables. Like that's ungodly. I mean, it's, this is the same. It's the same. It's making merchandise of the people of God. It's, it's fleecing the flock. It's, it's done under the guise of spirituality, but it's not. It is not. And it violates clear teaching in scripture on giving, right? Not to give by compulsion, but willingly. Um, and that, that we, we should not be seeking after dishonest gain, which is, which is exactly what happens. Oh, anyway, th- that is a great time. And there are plenty of leaders who you're part of a church where there are really significant compromises going on and you've been too quiet. And maybe it's time for you to speak up. Maybe it's time for you to speak up. Not in the flesh. No. Godly, spirit-filled, and aggressive. I think that there's an absolute time for that. And I pray that God gives you wisdom if that's if that's you and if that's your situation. Now, like, let's say it's not a church. What if it's you and you're in your home? Your home is your realm of authority, isn't it? You live there. This is my home. I have a certain authority here. This is a place where I should be able to cleanse the home, so to speak, of various things. That is appropriate and that is right. But most importantly, most importantly, your area of proper authority, more than anywhere else, it starts with you. And this is where I think the application of this whole Bible study comes down the most. You, you cleanse the temple that is you. I mean, you are the temple. That's, that's the most clear application of this passage. I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. Me, Mike, I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I want to cleanse this temple. I want to I want to deal with me before I deal with anybody else. I want to I want to make sure that what's happening here is godly. What's happening here is godly. What's happening here is godly. I want to see these things honoring and glorifying God. I'm supposed to be here for relationship with God, for love for God and for people, and it just it amazes me that God has entrusted it, us to be the temple of the Holy Spirit when we've failed so badly in so many ways. But that is me. Let me read to you a scripture because. I don't just want you to think about this verse. What I encourage you to do is think about the heart that's behind it. Because Paul the Apostle is writing to the Corinthians. The Corinthians was a church that had a lot of moral compromise going on. And one of the things that you can feel coming from the Apostle Paul is this sense of, don't, how do you not get this? How don't you know this? Like if you just, if this would click, if this would click for you, your life would change. And this is the topic, being the temple. He says, one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 17. You're one spirit with him. Let this sink in. And therefore, right? Therefore, it should be natural. Flee immorality. And this is probably talking about sexual immorality in particular. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. This is the phrase that gets me. Do you not know? Paul's like, you're, you're committing sexual sin. Like, do you not know? Don't you even know what God has done in your life through Christ? You've been joined to the, to the Lord. You are the house of God. His spirit dwells within you. Don't you know? Don't you know who you are? This is like looking at the temple and Jesus sees them making merchandise and taking advantage of people and turning it into like a profit scheme. 
And he's like, don't you know what this is? This is the temple. This is the house of God. This is the house of prayer. And so he flips out. Well, you should flip out on your own sin. You should flip out. You should let zeal for God's house consume you. Zeal for your own life. It is a a cloak for sin that I judge every other Christian, but I don't judge me. That I judge churches and whole movements, but I don't look at my own life to deal with the sin in the temple here and to cleanse it out. This is the application. Do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? That should drive it all. That should change everything. So this is not just about tearing down. It's not just about overturning tables. This is about restoring. Jesus says that, you know, my father's house is a house of prayer. Well, that's what you are to be. Now, prayer is all about relationship with God. And the temple in Jerusalem, this goes back all the way to Leviticus. The whole idea of the temple is God says, I can't dwell with such a sinful people. So we'll build a tabernacle. It'll be covered with sacrifices. And it'll be the place where because of the covering of the blood, people can connect with God. This will be where God and man can meet. Jesus comes. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He he fulfills all of it. He becomes the one, the place where God and man can meet. And then he, being the cornerstone, builds us together as the new temple. We're all, we are socially with God, right? Like we are relationally with God. We're meant to be a house of prayer, so to speak. That's the application that stands out to me. How is my relationship with God? How, you know, my prayer life is, do I have a actual devoted prayer life that shows relationship with God? This is a great thing to look at. Have other things come in and taken your prayer life away? I mean, nowadays, more than ever, the ability to just be constantly, continually, like 24-7, you know, consumed with entertainment or pursuing hobbies, it's just so easy. And those things aren't bad in and of themselves. They're bad when they, when they enter the temple and replace prayer and a relationship with God. That's when it's bad. So maybe it's time to cleanse the temple for you, for me. And to like seriously say, this isn't just like a cute, okay, let's apply the Bible study. This is, this is your purpose. Knowing God, loving God, loving others, and getting other things out of the way so that that will be your priority. And that'll be your, your occupation. Now let's talk about some historical stuff because this is interesting stuff. I didn't know this stuff, some of it, before I studied uh, didn't, until this last week. Uh, but... Doing verse-by-verse teaching means I get to stop and focus on a passage for many hours that I previously had not spent as much time on. So here's some neat things. What was wrong with what these guys were doing? Um, Well, verse 15, let me take us back to Mark 11. Then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and buying and selling. And again, I'm going to highlight, he kicks out the buyers and the sellers in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Remember the doves, that's important. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. So he's just like, yeah, you're not gonna do any of this stuff. Um, now, generally, we often think that what was happening in the temple is that there was overcharging going on. And that, that in particular with the doves, the doves were the offering for the poor. And we do have actual accounts that show that that particular offering and the other things that were going on was an overcharging. So there was um, a requirement in the temple that when you brought your currency, you couldn't just use any currency. You couldn't use Roman currency, any any currency except a shekel. It had to be a shekel. And the one shekel that was still around was the was the Tyrian shekel, tier like as in from Tyre. So there was a shekel being used in Tyre. That's what they would use in the temple. It was the approved money. So they had money changers. So when you brought your your money to the temple, you could change it out for the money that they used in the temple. 
here's a chance for someone to stick it to you, right? This is where, uh, you know, we all know, right? Credit card companies, like the people that make a lot of money are the ones who make a little bit on every transaction. <laughs> and so this is what was going on with the uh, with the money changers. It was, it was a profit thing for them. And it seems as though they were probably abusing that. And Jesus calls them a den of robbers as a result. There's other ways in which they were abusing this this the events that were going on in the temple so they they would um overcharge for the doves it seems there's a um actually i'll come to that in a minute i'm getting ahead of my notes let me let me tell you what the talmud says the jewish talmud which is written after this time but it's written about this time and it says the following about the priests who were running the temple around this time it says that they were quote sons of eli now you may not know this if you don't know the old testament real well that is like a, that's big, big time name calling, okay? Eli was the high priest in the time of Samuel, right? In 1 Samuel. And Eli, getting old, he was a good guy, but his sons were jerks. They were worse than that. They were horrible. They did horribly immoral things. They used their jobs as priests to take advantage of people. And so, as a result, God um, takes Shiloh, takes the location where the tabernacle is, and he says, I won't even have the tabernacle here anymore. And I'm going to kill all your sons, Eli, because of their wickedness. And so this is huge to call the priests from the time of Christ. Sons of Eli is one of the biggest insults you can give. In fact, it implies that it's their fault the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And then the Talmud goes on and says that like Eli's sons, they took by force, in quotes, took by force, and used the money to get more gold for the temple. So effectively, they found ways to overcharge people and take advantage of their, their authority to get more gold. They would use that money to make the temple more beautiful. What does that mean? It means the temple gold itself was corrupt. Wow. This puts a new spin on the, on the event that happened when the apostles say, Jesus, look at the temple and how beautiful it is. And he says, I tell you, not one stone will be left upon another. Because he's seeing with spiritual eyes, as we all should. And I don't mean he saw things other people didn't see. I mean, he didn't just see the beautiful building. He saw what was going on spiritually in it. This is like when I see the Mormon temple in San Diego, this beautiful, gorgeous building. I see the corruption of the deception of Mormonism when I look at it. And that, that Joseph Smith has perpetrated this fraud on so many people and has led them astray from the truth of Christ. Breaks my heart. I don't see that as a wonderful building. The beauty is corrupted. And I see that, and there's plenty of buildings like that in the world. And, um, and so even the temple, even the temple had been like that. I'll, I'll read more. Um, then uh, the Talmud goes on to say that because the priests took more than what was required, they overcharged people, that, quote, it did not take long before they covered the whole temple with gold plaques. So again, the, the plaques, the gold was a result of overcharging people. This is an example of those who build beautiful, beautiful buildings in the communities of the poor when they've coerced them into giving more than what they ever should have asked. And instead of the church primarily using money to help the poor and then to meet the needs, not make them rich, meet the needs of the ministers, those are the, the primary things, right? Meet the needs and then beyond that, feed the poor. Instead, they're building these gaudy buildings that are beautiful and gorgeous and then abstract uh abject poverty around them because it's just like in the first century and jesus is not cool with that josephus he's a first century historian a jewish who's also a jewish guy who's also a roman historian and he describes the temple this way i'm going to read a little section from josephus uh, his book the jewish wars 
And he says, The exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye, for being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold. The sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons strained to straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from solar rays it was like reflecting the sunlight to approaching strangers it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain for all that was not overlaid with gold was of the purest white from its summit protruded sharp gold spikes to prevent birds from settling upon it and polluting the roof so they had pigeon issues back then as well <laughs> so they had spikes on it to try to keep them from pooping um but even the beauty of the temple was corrupted. That's the point. What was going on in the temple was taking advantage of people and that every gold piece they threw at the temple was just another example of abuses of power. Annas and his sons, these are the, and his son, including Caiaphas, the, the, the family of Caiaphas and Annas, these guys are the high priests during the time of Christ. There were actually two high priests. One was not technically reigning anymore, but he was still influential and the other one was actually reigning. They had a very bad reputation. Uh, another Jewish source, the Tosefta, it says that these high priests made their sons treasurers who would come and physically beat other people into giving. Now, you can actually see an article by Craig Evans on this topic. I'll link it in the description. I meant to do it before. I'll link it in the description if you'd like to. It's called Jesus's Action in the Temple, Cleansing or Portent of Destruction. And it's a very interesting article. Um, no, I don't agree with everything on it. When I, when I recommend resources to you guys, don't think I agree with everything. You, you're, you have to use discernment every time uh, you read stuff, including when you're listening to me. You might recommend a video of mine. Doesn't mean you agree with everything I say. So I'm going to link that below, though. Really interesting content in there. Um, and I'm sharing a lot of it now. Josephus uh, agrees with this. And he says that the chief priests sent their servants to get tithes from lower-ranking priests by force. And then to quote Josephus, beating those who refused to give. Then Josephus goes on to say that this resulted in some of those priests starving to death. Now, even if you think Josephus is exaggerating, which he is known to do, <laughs> um, even if he's exaggerating, it came from somewhere, right? There was abuses that were, that were known, and these abuses were pretty extreme. The Tosefta also says the reason the second temple was destroyed, it actually gives a reason. It says it was because they loved money and hated one another. Now, the wealth of Annas' family, Annas and Caiaphas, and these are the ruling guys during the time of Christ, it was not only incredible, it was despised. In the Jewish revolt against Rome in 70 AD, when they took over Jerusalem, they also seized Annas' um, legacy, the wealth of, that he had left over to all his family, because that ruling class had been so abusive and the crowd had had enough of it. Now, this shows you why the crowd would have actually possibly been very favorable to Jesus doing the things he's doing, right? Because there's a general sense that these people are messed up, but they're in power. And Jesus, he's got a following, and here he is. He clears the temple, and so they don't want to stop him, at least not publicly. We'll get to their solution a little bit later on how they're going to take out Jesus. Now, let me mention briefly on the doves. Um, the doves are highlighted here. I highlighted them when I was reading the passage. Um, the Mishnah says that once in Jerusalem, a pair of doves cost a golden dinar. A golden dinar. Now, the dove is in Leviticus is meant to be the sacrifice that's the cheapest. Um, why? Because... If you can't afford a lamb or you can't afford a, a, whatever the other sacrifice would be, a bull or calf or whatever, you go and you get a dove because God wants everyone to be able to come to him. So they offer dove. The, the, proving that Jesus' family was poor because when he uh, was brought to the temple for dedication, they offered doves right? because they didn't have the money for the normal sacrifice, showing that they were poor. Prosperity preachers poke that in your eyeball. And um, 
And so, yeah, this this seems to have been 25 times the normal price, though. So once in Jerusalem, they were charging like 25 times the normal cost for doves. And this is supposed to be for the poor. What is the poor supposed to do? Just be in abject poverty? Oh, maybe they bring their own doves. Okay, except you have the, the inspectors. So you come to the temple and they go, ooh, let me look at your dove. Ooh, yeah, this dove, oh, there's a blemish here, you know. You're going to need one of our doves, right? And, and I wouldn't put it past them to do that on a regular basis. So Jesus refers to them as a den of thieves. Den of thieves or robber's den. Because they are not, not only, there's another issue, a whole other problem going on in the temple. But one of the issues is they're overcharging people. They're taking advantage of the poor. And he hates that. But it is not as though Jesus is actually against and I, and I, I only bring this up because in, in, when I taught it yesterday at the church, this topic came up in the Q&A discussion afterwards. And, and it's not that Jesus is actually against capitalism here, nor is he for it. Okay, this passage has nothing to do with capitalism. He's not opposed, though, to people selling and buying, right, sacrifices, providing a service where they, he's opposed to it being in the temple. And he's opposed to taking advantage of people where you overcharge them. That's the thing. It's, it's just about fair. But it's not about free market versus control markets and stuff like that. It just has nothing to do with that. And for those who want to use this to support capitalism, like you need to get onto the topic that scripture cares about, not your topic. For those who want to use it to support like socialism, same thing, right? The Christianity is meant to fit into any culture, any governmental system. We're meant to just fit there and live out serving and following Jesus there. The Bible's not trying to give us a system of government that we're meant to impose. Now, there are better and worse systems. I'm just saying, don't hang all that on Christianity. We should be able to live in any environment and follow Jesus well in that environment and be in any kind of structure of authority and serve him well in that structure. Okay, now here's the other side. And this is what people, I never hear anybody talk about this. And I think it's very significant for interpreting this passage. Jesus, again, I'll highlight, verse 15, he didn't just kick out the sellers, he kicked out the buyers. The people who were buying stuff were also kicked out. Now, we usually see them as the victims, as I've just described. They were being taken advantage of. But Jesus kicks them out too. This is because he doesn't want this stuff taking place in the temple. It's, it can happen somewhere else, but not here. You can buy and sell stuff. Get out of the temple. Do it there. Don't do it here. This is for prayer. This is for worship. This is for fellowship with God. That's what this is for. Now, here's a little tidbit from history. There was a scholar named Epstein. Epstein who um, did some research on this, and he found that the occurrence of buying and selling like this, the first record, uh, recorded time we have of this happening at all is under Caiaphas. And Caiaphas, it seems, had a tiff, had a fight with some of the other people who were doing buying and selling this in the Sanhedrin, and he removed them from the temple areas. And then they're having to, not only from the temple, but from around it, and they have to move further away. Then it seems that Caiaphas may have installed his own buyers and sellers, where now he's like, he's like the mafia, right? He's like, hey, you want to sell, you got to get, you got to give me a little bit of, you know, <laughs> and so then he puts them in. So Caiaphas is now basically in charge of and enriching himself through controlling trade and sticking it right into the, into the court of the Gentiles, the only place where everyone can go to worship God. In other words, Jesus is, is specifically trying to get rid of something that may have been a fairly recent development. This might have been the first year, or not, probably not the first year, it may have been the first four or five years of this thing happening, which also shows why the crowd was even probably more supportive of it. They remember their whole lives not seeing this going on right like this in the temple with these kinds of abuses. And so he may have had a lot of support actually in doing this. 
So that is the historical background. Um, and it shows us why they didn't stop him, why they didn't actually stop him. Many people may have been excited, and given the recent change that had gone on, it seems, Epstein seems to make a case for that, that you don't have to agree with this whole argument, for those who want to dig into it, to understand that he has a case at least for this maybe being a more recent development, or at least getting a lot worse recently. And Jesus had a significant following, he's gathered with his people, and this is why in uh, in later on, verse 21, they're going to plot for some other opportunity to kill him because they can't just grab him right now publicly. He's got too much support and man, Jerusalem is volatile during Passover. All these Jews are there with national fervor and it's 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 a powder keg. And so they have to be careful. It's their job to make peace with Rome. That's how they stay in position, right? If they cause too much trouble, they're out, which happens in 70 AD, right? They all just get destroyed. So, um, I think there's another application to the prosperity preachers. Um, and I, I, I never want to miss a chance to highlight a difference between prosperity preachers and I think the gospel and, and the truth of scripture, because I think there's people who we just, we don't realize we're carrying around the baggage of false teachings when a prosperity. Okay. The temple is not about your transaction. The temple is about your relationship with God. That's the, that's the main point here. When the prosperity preachers and you, you go to church and they make your relationship with God and God's approval and God's help all contingent upon you giving them money, giving them money. I mean, this is the most obvious scheme in the world. You're going to, you have to give it to them and then you're going to enrich them. And then the God's going to enrich you. Well, why, why don't, if that works, like Benny Hinn, if that works, please give me $50,000 and then God will give you $500,000 within 72 hours guaranteed, Right. But it never works that way because the prosperity preachers, they only give away a portion of the significant income they get from others. Um, and they don't. Yeah. Anyway, I could go on. <laughs> I could go on. And when they do give, they want to make sure everybody knows about it. Look what I gave. Anyhow, um, just like the Pharisees. This, this point is this. The prosperity preachers soil your relationship with God because they make you think that your relationship, your love relationship with God Almighty is somehow dependent upon the offering, the transaction. And that's not the case. Jesus is the, is the sacrifice. He establishes and makes the relationship. And now I just enter in. The whole temple, it's, it's built on the sacrifices, prepare the way. Jesus is the sacrifice. I just enter into relationship. And it's important to have that knowledge in your heart. Verse 17, as we continue here, it says, um, and he began to teach and say to them, it is not is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all, na all the nations, but you've made it a robber's den. Now, here's wh where uh, the meaning's obvious here. I don't need to explain the meaning, but I want to explain the Old Testament context because he's quoting two different passages of scripture. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. That is Isaiah 56 verse 7. Let me talk about that briefly. Isaiah 56, the context is that Gentiles um, are to worship God in the temple, that there's a prediction that all nations will come and worship God and they'll come before him. And that's what the purpose of his house will be. So the beauty of this is amazing, right? Because he goes and he's, he's, a, he's a savior of the Jews, but he's also bringing in the Gentiles. And even here in the temple, he's clearing it out to make way for, for Gentiles as well to worship God. So this is, this is great. They have no care for them. In fact, there were some Jewish expectations of the time. We actually see in, in ancient writings that, um, that the Messiah was going to cut off Gentiles from Israel. Now, it's true the Messiah is going to, you know, stop the oppression of Israel. That's true prophetically. 
but to cut off the Gentiles, as in they'll no longer have access to God. That's not the case. Prophecy says otherwise, and Isaiah 56, 7 is one of those verses. So Jesus is the Savior of all. Now, the, um, the second quote is from Jeremiah, and this one's really eerie. Jeremiah 7, 11. You've made it a robber's den. Now, that little phrase, robber's den, um, they're going to know this is about Jeremiah 7, 11, but let me show you how like appropriate it is for this time. In Jeremiah 7, God calls the temple a den of robbers. That's what he calls it, the robber's den. And as a result, he prophesies that it w- he will destroy the temple. That's the context of Jeremiah 7. The temple is a robber's den, so I'm going to destroy it. And here's Jesus quoting a passage that is a condemnation and of future destruction of the temple to the newer temple, the second temple. The context of this being with the fig tree and the destruction and then Mark 13 as well, like this is all very clear. It's condemnation on Israel for having rejected Jesus. And that is, in the New Testament, the ultimate worst sin, the rejection of Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate thing. Uh, Verse 18, the chief priests and scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him for they were afraid of him for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. So they end up not being able to. They're, they're afraid of him because of the crowd, right? They don't, you know, they're not scared of Jesus by himself, but there's a crowd following him. So what they'll end up doing is they'll make a deal with Judas. They'll come to him at night and then they'll, at nighttime, they take him into the court where they gather just the people who will support him, them in trying to condemn him. And they're controlling all the crowds until finally when Jerusalem wakes up, when people come out, Jesus is already before Pilate. He's already standing there and the um, they've they've got their crowd now supporting them as well at that point. So that's going to be the new strategy. Verse 19, when evening came, they would go out of the city. That phrase, they would go, it just means it was normal. Um, now, here's another, um, since I like talking about prosperity preachers so much, I find it very prosperous. Uh, the, uh, the phrase, they would go out of the city is kind of interesting because it means it was a regular thing. They, they would go out. Uh, every evening, they would leave the city and they would probably travel back to Bethany. Uh, most likely, Jesus is staying with Lazarus and Martha and Mary. He's probably staying with them, and which is nearby, just on the other, other side of the Mount of Olives. And you could walk there in the, in the day. Now, why is that interesting? Because rich people stayed in Jerusalem. So they didn't have to walk in and out of the city every day. Rich people stayed in Jerusalem, but Jesus stays out in Bethany. I think that's interesting. Meh. Verse 20. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered up, uh, withered from the roots up. And notice the lack of commentary, right? There's no commentary on what the meaning of this is. The passage itself is the commentary. It's the sandwich. It's the fig tree, the temple cleansing, which implies judgment in the Jeremiah passage he quotes. And then the fig tree again. So it's the intentional subtle theology of the gospel of Mark. We see it all the time in the deity of Jesus and his mission. And I think that um, as I've read, here's, here's what happens. Like you read the gospel of Mark and you think you get it, even though you're just going this deep. It's amazing. Then you see commentaries online and you see skeptics online who are like, well, oh, the Jesus doesn't even, the deity of Jesus isn't even in the gospel of Mark. Oh, the gospel uh, Mark doesn't, doesn't even have historical knowledge. He's really, and they say all these challenging things that really challenge Christians when they first hear them. And then when you study Mark like we are, thoughtfully, carefully with historical information, with, with, with original language information, and most importantly, just being very careful to look at the context, which you can do in English, okay? You see that there is so much more thoughtful, careful, deep theology that is super exactly the same thing we get in the rest of the New Testament. Um, it, and it's, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. 
So it's kind of ironic how that happens. It's always that way with, with apologetic issues, I find. If you have a real surface level understanding, you're prone to the quick objections you get from those who you see online. And then you go really deep and all of a sudden you find out that this thing was better than you ever thought it was. And uh, yeah, that's how kind of how it goes. Then verse 21, being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Has withered. Um, this is kind of Peter being shown as the spokesman of the group. He does seem to be the spokesman for the disciples. And... Um, the uh, uh, and probably the chief witness behind the Gospel of Mark, and so there he is. He shares that. Now here's the main point. I want to I want to close with this. The non-believer. If you're watching this and you're a non-believer, first I'm I'm aware that there are non-believers who watch the videos I, I I make, and I hope that you find it helpful and thoughtful and interesting, and I hope that you find that it's. While I I'm, I'm going to obviously disagree with your your disagreements with Jesus Christ, I'm going to try and build a bridge with why you should change your mind. I hope. But my main point is this, for the non-believer, how you respond to Jesus matters more than anything in the world. Don't put it off. Don't wait. Don't be like, Jesus, next time you come around, I'll say yes. Like, turn to Christ now. There's an urgency. There's a need. Because when he comes and you say no, you're the one being judged in that. That there's, there should be a sense of urgency to, to, to follow Christ or if for some reason you're still on some fence to figure out the truth. For the Christian, the application is that you're the temple. What are you for? You're for a life devoted to God, not merely involving God. A life for God. He's not a supplement that enters your life. He is your life. When Christ, who is our life, appears, right? He is our life. Not materialism, not other things, and maybe it's time for you to have a cleansing. As I close, um, and I'll close in prayer, uh, I want to ask that we just be open and ask, Lord, uh, survey my temple. And show me if there's something that needs to be cleansed. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that. Show us if there's something that needs to be gutted out of our lives. Where we need to aggressively, vigorously oppose something that we have put in place in our lives that is taking away our purpose, taking us away from our fellowship with you, our love for God, our love for others, and our service to Christ. We pray, really, Lord, open our eyes. We don't want to be anxious. We don't want to have anxiety. When Jesus entered the temple, he saw with perfect clarity exactly what was wrong and knew what to do. And we pray for that kind of clarity for our lives so that we could just clear the way for knowing you more, for following you closely, for walking in fellowship and sweet relationship with you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, I hope that this has been a blessing to you. And we'll be back next week. We're going to do a whole thing on prayer. And Jesus, this is probably the number one passage that faith... Um, faith healers and word word of faith movement use and i want to talk about that next week that's going to be there um wednesday i have a video coming out on youtube tips like how you might as a christian do youtube um i'm sharing some information there that might be helpful for you and friday at 1 p.m pacific time the q a um where you can ask any questions you've got and i will answer as many as i can in an hour all right lord bless you and thanks for joining